Well, John and I thought we'd, we'd talk for 10 or 15 minutes each. And my name's Will Hutton, I'm the principal of Hartford College, and I chair something called the Big Innovation Centre, um, which is uh, a little, we call ourselves a, an innovation hub, uh, where we try to promote open innovation techniques uh, because we think they're appropriate for the extraordinary complexities and ability to make mistakes in today's environment, uh, where actually it's not obvious often um, what it is you should be doing and how it is commercialisable. And that's a, bigger that's a bigger challenge for a major corporation like GSK, who's a member of the Big Innovation Centre, as it is for a startup. Um, and John will say a few words, uh, and we'll then um, get going with, with exchange with you. Um, before I start, I, I, I was going to begin with talking about general purpose technologies, uh, or GPTs, the acronym. Uh, just before I do that, I mean, is everyone aware of what a GPT is? I mean, how, if I say general purpose technology, does, does this bring a kind of everything over? How wearisome is that? We're going to do. We know all about that. We don't. Need, so I'm, I'm on virgin territory broadly, but I. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, a general purpose technology. This was a around the late 80s, uh, late 80s, early 1990s. Um, there were big debates in economics about essentially um, beginning to question. Um, the kind of truisms and, algor and, algor and algorithms of uh, the revival of neoclassical economics. Could it be that only the free market drove economic growth? And there were some, you know, some tough questions being asked of what was called the Washington Consensus. And a bunch of economists, innovation theorists, came up with this notion, and it's, it's actually fairly self-evident if you're reflecting it for a second, that actually that what drives um, economic growth um, is not so much the, the increase in capital from one year to another or from one, or from one decade to another. It's the technology and science within that capital. And then they're going to think much harder about the nature of scientific and technological progress. And a general purpose technology was defined as a technology um, like electricity uh, or di digitalization, uh, which has... Uh, it may originate in a particular area. A lot of these technologies began in transport or in agriculture um, or in energy. But they have, they're so transformative, they have a general application. They have multiple spillovers. And the technology itself has, within its own DNA, the capacity to be something very different over the decades. Um, a classic, I mean, there's about 30 of these GPTs, and the, the very first ones were... Um, the invention of the uh, domestication of animals, uh, cross-fertilization of um, you know, food types. Um, you get into the... Kind of, you, one of my favourite GPTs um, is the third mast on a sailing ship um, at the end of the 15th century, which transformed um, the capacity of a sailing ship. Uh, it could start, once you have a third mast, and actually developing a hull that was strong enough to take the tension of a third mast, it could sail close to the wind. And a ship that can sail close to the wind can actually cross the Atlantic and come back. And that was how the Americas were opened up. And the technology of a third mast of a sailing ship over the centuries that followed just was transformative. So the kind of lumbering galleons that crossed the, uh, the Atlantic in the kind of early kind of, um, 16th century to open up you know, um, the Spanish mine, the great gold and silver mines of Latin America were very different from the tea clippers that could get to Australia in less than 100 days. So the technology was transformed within itself. But the spillovers were amazing. 
I mean, the, uh, uh, the third master, you can, you, can, you can argue that the great inflation of the, of the 16th century, the rise of Protestantism, the Reformation, uh, the rise of maritime Europe, the, the emergence of Europe as the dominant continent was all around the third, the third master of sailing ship. You can do the same with um, the railway. Um, and the, the connection with science is that, the, um, that you know, we know that science itself grows exponentially. But you also get crossovers between scientific disciplines, so that you know we, we can identify eight or nine general purpose technologies in the 20th century. Um, they include, um, you know, the, the internal combustion engine, the aeroplane, um, the computer. Um, but applying the same logic when you get into the 21st century, there could be as many as 20. Um, that's because the growth of science is exponential, and the crossovers are exponential. I mean, obviously, hear what John has to say about the way medicine is being impacted by digitalization, or medicine being impacted by, you know, um, I don't know, robotics, nanotechnologies, miniaturization, all the rest of it. You know, opens up possibilities that didn't that didn't exist. Um, now, there's a big debate in economics and amongst innovation theorists. There's a, there's a one wing of them that say, well, basically, all human wants have basically been satiated. And someone like you, Will Hutton, who makes this point, and there's others like me who make this point, don't really get it. Um, uh, the, um, the productivity has really slowed down in, in the last 40 years, in both across and the West. It's been negligible in the United States of America. And actually, you know, you can see, you talk about all these innovations, but you actually can't see it in the productivity numbers. Um, you can say how wonderful and interesting digitalization is, uh, but actually, you know, Google only employs 10,000 people. And Ford at its height, and probably a quarter million people. Um, Google can buy WhatsApp for $19 billion and employs 50 people. And these wonderful GPTs you talk about um, employ very few people, and they aren't going to have the kind of wealth generating and spillover effects that actually the GPTs of the 19th and 20th century had. Um, my reply is that I think digitalization is a meta GPT, like electricity, which had real cascade effects. And that actually, um, it will, they, they, they will have these kind of impacts. Um, it took, uh, it took um, 60 years for steam to come through. It took electricity 40 years. I think it will take 30 years for the impact digitalization to kind of start to have its, its, its impact on business models and the way we do things uh, in the round. Um, I'm, in another life, I'm also on the Scott Trust, which I'm in my last 18 months on the Scott Trust. It owns the Observer and the Guardian. And one of the things we have to do is to figure out how digitalization is going to um, kind of affect um, the, what you, many of you, I hope, are Guardian Observer readers. Um, circulation of the Observer and the Guardian paper circulation has halved in a decade. It will halve again in the next six or seven years. Um, question is, by 2020, how will you uh, access the content that the journalists on these two papers provide? Uh, FT, you know, whoever it's saying, we are simply uncertain about how that can happen. We, it's, it's really, it's, it's and what economists call Knightian uncertainty. You just don't know what the outcome is going to be. We suspect it'll be uh, on apps on your mobile, but it could be on your tablet. We're not certain how to commercialize it. We're not certain that uh, it can be monetized. We think we may have to have global scale uh, in order to make the sums add up. And so the Guardian is taking a bet a, complete, a, a bet that we're going to keep our paywall, uh, we're not going to have a paywall, keep it completely open, 
and we think that we can become a global liberal brand like The Economist and the Financial Times, and that we can uh, get a scale, uh, not with 50 million hits a day, but with over 100 million hits a day globally, to be able to commercialise uh, and make a, uh, an operable business model. We could be wrong, in which case it's curtains. Uh, the Times is making an alternative bet. They're saying we're as uncertain as the, as the Guardian, but we're going to do it behind a paywall. We're going to make you subscribe big fancy money as if it was a newspaper. And it's this uncertainty that actually confronts everyone about what is the future going to hold given the multiple kind of, uh, kind of possibilities there are. Um, I, when I arrived at Oxford, I was enormously impressed by um, the Structured Genomics Consortium, uh, which, uh, um, well, essentially, I mean, um, John fathered it, uh, brought together um, eight, uh, I think it's now more, actually. Ten. No, ten. No. Uh, it's ten world pharmaceutical companies, and John could talk about it much better than me. I'll just say a sentence, how I understand it. But each of these pharmaceutical companies kind of just is facing the strange structural uncertainty of the pharma that we're facing in the world of of newspapers, you know, what will be the next generation of antibiotics? You know, what will be the business model that will sustain them? You know, how do you discover them? And how do you stop making mistakes? Uh, if you if you follow some peer-reviewed article and all they're all doing it simultaneously, they're simply reproducing each other's work. So they decide to come together and actually open up to each other, uh, so that much better to actually share. Uh, and I'm never quite certain how, the, how this works when you get to commercialising something that you think is going to kind of operate. You know, I'd love you to talk about that. But actually the insight is that there's so many mistakes possible that they can't, they dare to actually go it alone. So what you're watching is you're watching a very interesting kind of change in the way you know, people think about technology and technology transfer. I mean, if 30, 40, 50 years ago you were a policymaker thinking, or a big corporate you know, policymaker thought basically it's quite simple. We'll invest a lot of money in our universities and they'll generate a lot of knowledge in a kind of linear way that will cascade into companies who can exploit it. And, that's a, and the trick to do is, uh, is to kind of spend sufficient money and it's more or less a linear transmission mechanism. Um, there'll be mistakes along the way, but think of it in those terms. You know, now we enter a paradigm which is completely non linear, multiple mistakes. You can't think of that, you can't think of top down ways of making it. Similarly, um, the big corporates have actually wrapping up their big corporate laboratories. Uh, oh, the overheads are huge, they don't get the returns, so who's actually doing the research? And again, the only way to do it is to come together in an open way. And then there's open questions then about once you've done it, um, how you commercialise it, how you actually take an idea and scale it up. One of the, things, one of the remarks I make in a, in a book I've just written about comparing the recovery from this depression and that we've been living through to the one in the 1930s, is if you spool the clock back to 1936, 1937, uh, you know, Britain boasted lots of companies that were retrieving global scale um, that um, were the, the kind of spear carriers, the kind of load carriers of the new. I mean, here there was Austin Morris, there was Morris Cars, there was Thorne Consumer Electronics, there was ICI, uh, there was Hawker Siddeley, fantastic companies um, that were... Uh, really very, very big and growing very fast and actually laid the basis of the technology that allowed us to win World War II. You know, if you spool on now to 2014, you know, we're, 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 we're six years on from 2008, you know, six years on from 1929 was 1935, you know, you're those kind of companies. Now, the only company I can name um, of that similar scale is Arm, which is, you know, 
And even Armour's got a turnover less than a, bit, than a billion pounds. Uh, and it's all we've got. We've got multiple, multiple, multiple uh, thousands of startups, of companies that are kind of 5, 10, 15 strong. Um, but they, there's a kind of scale-up gap in actually getting from being very tiny to being of substantive size. Um, and that's uh, many of these companies, which is what we do at the Big Innovation Centre, they find that in order to get to any size, they surrender all their equity to venture capitalists before they get to £2 million of turnover. So when you're trying, when you're trying to get to the next leg, to the, uh, the next round of development or whatever it is you're developing, which is always longer than um, you think, and by the way, multiple chances of making mistakes, um, you find that you actually simply can't get the equity because you sold it all. And certainly, uh, there's no proper system of evaluation of intellectual property rights. There's no way of trading intellectual. There's no way you can trade intellectual property rights in Britain. We need to develop some trading platforms for that. Um, and, you, and in the absence of that, you won't get the clearing banks to come through with finance either. So what you do, you actually cash out. You sell to a multinational, usually foreign, um, who runs your destiny. And again, we've watched that happen multiple times around Oxford. When, how does this fit in with kind of Bill's agenda and social enterprise? I think that the um, point I, I, I make is that actually you know, in this environment, um, you know, everyone has to get kind of more responsive, more open, smarter, agile. And actually um, the state itself, I mean, a lot of people uh, at the minute there's a rebirth of the notion that actually you can't do innovation in a serious way without upfront investment by the state, which is the way you socialise risk. It needs a, you know, we want the collective outcome of more, of more innovation. Given all this uncertainty, an individual company can't do it. Therefore, you know, the taxpayer um, does it to get the public good of, uh, of, of, of more innovation. But the officials in uh, um, the Department of Business or the people who populate the research councils aren't smarter than anybody else. I mean, they're, they're pretty smart, but they're not, they're, not, they're not dumb either. I mean, they're sometimes characterised by economists and politicians on the right as dumb. But they're, you know, they're operating in all this uncertainty too. So you know, you need a kind of makeover of these structures so that you get much more collaboration, much more of the kind of, kind of the model that you've developed in the structured genetics consortium. Uh, that kind of thinking. And companies themselves have to be open innovators. And one has to think about kind of new forms of actually risk-taking and, and forms of actually um, in the... I mean, it's not a word which I... I mean, I'm not a socialist, but of socialising or collectivising risk. And I think there are... One of my kind of complaints about the British system for innovation, I'm going to finish now, um, is that we don't think in terms of actually populating... How we... How, given what I've said, you then think about what is the ecosystem... You know, what's the ecosystem? What are the various kind of institutions that populate the ecosystem that could... Um, one way or another, find, be more likely to find right answers to these difficult questions, more likely um, to kind of share the risk, more likely um, to make the investment, and also to find new instruments by which you get you know, the paybacks from the investment you've made. One of the problems, I think, with a lot of um, grants we make to our big corporates is it turns out to be from corporate welfare. I mean, the, you, make, you make a big grant to ABC, drug company and then you find that actually the patented drug as a result of that of that of research the profit stream is taken offshore and routed through some complex tax avoidance device and actually the tax base of the 
uh, that we should be getting, or the tax receipts we should be getting, we're not getting because the corporate has actually kind of hidden uh, that revenue from us, though it only has the revenue because we made the investment. We therefore can't repeat the investment a second time round. So part of the ecosystem has to be you know, different types of behaviours um, from corporates. And above all, and here we get to Bill's kind of agenda, we need um, much more sophisticated intermediate institutions um, that sit between the entrepreneur, the startup, the research lab, um, and actually business and government. Intermediate institutions, I call them. Now, I sit on the board of the um, Satellite Applications Catapult in Harwell, and we try to figure out how you know, the small amount of money we've got could be leveraged into supporting kind of a much more rapid growth um, of the satellite applications industry in Britain. And it's bloody hard to do. Um, one, of the problem, one of the reasons it's bloody hard to do is actually finding who your interlocutors are is, is, is difficult enough. So, you know, I'm an advocate of social... And this is where I think social enterprise kind of comes in. You know, we have to find you know, new forms of organisation, um, equivalent in a way of, kind of building societies in the 19th century, new forms of mutual, new forms of self-help organisation, which actually... Can, take upon it themselves to do this task. Um, yeah, I, I think I've, I have ideas about how, you can how that could be commercialisable and ideas about how um, you can make money out of that. But I, I think this is the, this kind of borderland between um, uh, you know, the private uh, and actually the social you know, is where the action is. Um, and I finish off on this note... Um, no great enterprise uh, you know, ever gets to scale um, if its founders kind of don't have some great, daring, ambitious goal for it that actually addresses an economic and social challenge that human beings want addressed. And uh, This notion that actually the whole point of capitalist enterprise is just to make a fast buck and walk away from it. If, you, if that's your mindset, you don't end up um, with sustainable long-term success. You know, the great corporations uh, and the great entrepreneurs are ones who have that in mind. When I spend time in the valley and when I spend time actually you know, in, in the, uh, on the hill with the, and the teams that you know, John directs and works with, you know, what inspires you is that uh, people are kind of trying to make the world a better place from which they hope to make some money. Um, and that is a much better mindset, I think, than actually saying, I'm out to make money. And if that's your mindset... It's already the same mindset as someone who's involved in social enterprise. So I'll hand over to John. No, that's terrific, Ashley. So just, just to follow in, I've got a, a lot of things that, that, that support what Will's said to you. But if, you, the, if the starting point is where do you want to play in terms of economic growth, but also human well-being, it's pretty hard to make the argument that it should be anything but life sciences and medicine. Because in the end, when we built all the fighter planes we can build in, aircraft carriers and this and that. In the end, what people will want is longer, better lives, where they're healthier for a longer period throughout their lives. And so in the end, it's a bit of society which produces huge benefits to man, but it's also a bit of society that will bring with it, I think, some significant amounts of economic growth. And my interest, which really parallels Will's, is the system doesn't work at the moment for taking innovative ideas that are being fueled by some of these major revolutions in science, the digital revolution, nanotechnology, engineering, physics. A lot of the physical sciences are feeding into the life sciences, genomics for one, 
And how do you take those and create those into sustainable models which can be applied to patient populations, both in the West, but also importantly in the developing world? And how do you cross that gap, what some people would call the valley of death, but to, to get innovations I, I created in a commercial environment so they're sustainable? And one of the outcomes you would like to see is that we create some significant industry which, where stuff is commercialized in this country and where it creates some economic growth here over time. Now the sad bit of this story is that it's not, I think, helpful to say, oh, let's be Silicon Valley. So Cambridge says that all the time. The truth is I've seen the numbers. They are so, t they're not even as big as Mountain View, for God's sake. So, and it's, you know, it's completely different. And I don't think the situation in Silicon Valley will ever be replicated in Europe now. Uh, and to be clear, the biotech um, um, uh, agenda in Silicon Valley was fueled by taxpayers' dollars and very large amounts of them. I was there in the early 80s and, and all those companies were hugely subsidized. We're kind of beyond that now here and I think we have to think of other ways of creating systems as Will's described whereby you take innovations out of universities and you get them downstream to be commercialized. Yet the sad story is that despite the fact the UK is the leading biotech center in Europe, uh, we have yet to produce a single mid-sized company. And what's a mid-sized company? So a company that makes something that employs people who pay tax. And that's all. So we haven't, <laughs> we haven't done that yet. So we've had thousands of biotech companies. We haven't had one that's got to that rather low bar. So there is a problem. And the problem in no particular order relates to the venture capital model, which is too short-term, too focused on molecules, not people. The lack of long-term capital the fact that universities spin their technologies out far too early, the fact that the IP gets in the way of commercialization in, uh, in the early stages when you're trying just to understand systems, hence the open innovation example that Will cited. Um, uh, universities are more interested in income than in their ultimate impact, which I think is a fundamental yeah. problem that needs to be fixed. There's been very lim limited ability to partner with the healthcare system, who's the ultimate beneficiary of this in the UK. Um, and there are solutions to that by changing every bit of a structure that sits in that piece between the original discovery and the sustainable commercialization that allows you to grow real companies that sell things and, um, and generate income. Uh, I, I'll just give you a couple of examples and then we can stop and take some questions, but we've been playing around with this quite a lot in the medical school. Structural genomics was a good example of open innovation. We're just about to launch the Harrington Fund in Europe. So the Harrington Fund is a very interesting fund supported by a philanthropist out of Cleveland in America who put $150 million on the table, which has now been matched by a set of foundations. And what they will do is they will take discoveries as they occur in academia and help to fund them, but more importantly, support them with a network of people who come out of industry, many of them now retired, who will help academics make good decisions about how they develop those things in academia before they ever get turned into companies. So reduce the gestation period by keeping stuff in universities much longer so that by the time you spin these ideas out, they're much closer to the finish line. And, and that structure is, has been really helpful and we're going to expand it now uh, in the UK uh, to other centers outside of Oxford. We've tried uh, impact 
funding. We tried to raise a thing called the Lotus Fund to support things, uh, med tech in India. There, we, we never succeeded, and I can tell you the reasons for that in a question of time, but th these are really hard, so that doesn't look like it's got easy traction in terms of the developing world. Um, but there are other sources of what are essentially philanthropic support. The Wellcome Trust is a very good example. The Gates Foundation is a very good example, and I've had a lot to do with both of them. Uh, and they're very good ways to help fuel this intermediate period where you lead long-term capital. People are not going to sell up to the first company that comes on and keep companies going for a long period of time. So I've got three Fs, families, which are really crucial, foundations, and long-term funds. And those are the people we're trying to bring in to the Oxford environment to try and change the entire system by which we move innovation from academic labs into sustainable companies. So I'll stop there. Thank you,